Welcome to Beyond Religion. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lott. It's episode eight today, which means we're rounding the bend to the end of season one. And already people are asking if there's going to be a season two. And when I say people, I mean, we're not talking thousands of people, but you are connecting and listening and giving some feedback. And I'm really grateful for that. Those of you who are with me. For the most part, the feedback I'm getting is really, really positive. But some people don't like how hard I'm being on the church. And that really wasn't my intention in setting the theme for this podcast. I purposefully chose the word religion because I really am talking about human-made institutions that maybe at their purest point were meant to be transforming and transcending kind of places, but because of the humanness they become systems and structures just like everything else that humans make. And sometimes those systems and structures can cause more harm than good, can be more oppressive than freeing, can be obstacles to spirituality rather than paths to divinity. That is where I have hoped to go in season one. And in heading there, we've ended up talking a lot about the obstacles and the pain and I guess that makes sense because usually a person does not go searching for the water, as we've put it, or something that is an alternative to institutional religion if they haven't had some kind of experience or exposure with institutional religion that they're now rejecting or walking away from or saying no thank you to. So I do want to get to some of the fun, creative, alternative. I do want to get there, but I don't want to bypass the pain. That could be also some of my Enneagram 4 stuff that I am good with the dark parts and we're going to sit with it. And then later we can ask what's being born or what's emerging or what some alternatives are. And there are little snippets of that all throughout these first eight episodes. And there's a lot of telling the truth. One of my favorite quotes is by Muriel Rukeyser, poet from, I think, the 1960s. And she says, what would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. A woman who did tell the truth about her life, Rachel Held Evans has really been on my mind and heart lately. And this past week on May 4th, we remembered the anniversary of her death. I've been thinking lately, I wonder what Rachel would say. I wonder what Rachel would say about the past four years. I wonder what Rachel would say about January 6th and the summer of 2020 and COVID and where we are at this moment in church. So I've turned to some of her writing and thought I'd bring it into the intro today as we consider why are we talking about some of the pain part? Why are we dwelling on the hurt? And a lot of these church stories are bringing up some shame for how people have treated their clergy, grief for how people have been treated by the church, embarrassment that I am airing some dirty laundry. I'm not just trying to spill tea. I'm not just trying to be salacious. Believe me, There would be so many other topics to get into if that was my goal. Anyway, Rachel Held Evans. In her book, Searching for Sunday, she wrote, The modern day church doesn't like to wander or wait. The modern day church likes results. Convinced the gospel is a product we've got to sell to an increasingly shrinking market. We like our people to function as walking advertisements. Happy, put together, finished, proof that this Jesus stuff works. 
At its best, such a culture generates pews of Stepford Wife-style robots with painted smiles and programmed moves. At its worst, it creates environments where abuse and corruption get covered up to protect reputations and preserve image. The world is watching, Christians like to say, so let's be on our best behavior and quickly hide the mess. Let's throw up some before and after shots and roll that flashy footage of our miracle product, blanching out every sign of dirt, hiding every sign of disease. But if the world is watching, we might as well tell the truth. And the truth is the church doesn't offer a cure. It doesn't offer a quick fix. The church offers death and resurrection. The church offers the messy, inconvenient, gut-wrenching, never-ending work of healing and reconciliation. The church offers grace. Anything else we try to peddle is snake oil. It's not the real So this one's in memory of Rachel. This episode, we are imagining a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. A place where we tell one another the truth, and we hope that in doing so, we might just create sanctuary. Reverend Matt Duvall is my guest today. He's the Director of Development for Mercer School of Theology. Matt received a Master of Divinity from the McAfee School of Theology in 2004, and a Bachelor of Arts from Mercer University in 2001. He has served the local church through a variety of capacities, including youth and missions and interim pastoral ministry, as well as pastoring congregations in Georgia and Kentucky. As the Director of Development, Matt works to raise support for and connection with the School of Theology. Matt and I have gotten to know each other through this podcast, despite having a million and one mutual friends on all the socials. We started talking about sobriety and numbing and vices and all the ways that we shortcut to get to the feeling good part and not feel the pain. This one's about addiction and recovery and sobriety and telling the truth about our lives. I am grateful that you're with us and that you're listening as we continue to explore what exists beyond religion. Matt. Hey, Elizabeth. Thanks for being willing to do this and interested in talking with me. I'm glad to do it. Looking forward to it. We don't really know each other very well. So we've got a million mutual friends because that's what happens in Baptist life. That's right. Uh, but I'm excited to get to know you and I'm glad that we are getting to know each other. So let's start at the beginning because uh, I've already forgotten, even though we just had dinner a couple weeks ago. Tell me where you're from and what were some of your earliest memories of religious life and sense of spirituality? I was born in Atlanta. My parents went to Emory. My dad was finishing med school when my twin brother and I were born. I guess the first church we were a part of was First Baptist Church of Decatur. Oh, really? My grandparents were missionaries in West Africa, in Nigeria. My dad is a MK, and my grandfather was associate pastor on staff there. My grandmother was second woman in the state of Georgia to be ordained to the ministry. First Decatur ordained her. She was a chaplain in Atlanta. And so church, as far as I can remember, was always a part of life. Have you heard, have you heard us talk about CBF legacies? Those pastors whose parents are pastors. I mean, you tick all the boxes. Yeah. I mean, a quadruple legacy. I remember having conversations about some of these denominational wars and meetings and all that. Every time we'd get together for holidays and that kind of thing, the CBF of Georgia office at one point, I think my grandmother was maybe the second moderator for the state of Georgia. She was early on. It, It ran out of their dining room table at one point before they had really offices. 
grandmother's name? Pearl Duval. Okay. So she was one of those early Baptist women in ministry who was supporting and encouraging other women to come along. And so that was just kind of a given in our life that you were going to be a part of church and that this was a significant part and rhythm of life. My grandmother, I remember uh, when she was alive, she would tell stories about when we were little, like three and four years old, and we would walk down the halls with her at First Baptist Decatur. I would be out in front of her greeting people and saying hello to people. And my twin brother, who's a little bit more introverted than me, would be kind of behind her in the folds of her skirt, you know, and we would go down the hall. But that was just, that was just what you did. Do you have any consciousness, like any memories that you can grab onto of some concept of God outside of church? Or was it, this is something I'm asking myself because I keep asking people this same question. And so it's interesting for me when people are like, I remember looking at the sunset and I don't know that I do. I remember church feeling warm and safe, especially like in a hallway on a Tuesday when you're not really supposed to be there and it's really yeah. empty, those were my favorite places to be. Yeah, I mean, I think those are those are good descriptors. Warm, welcoming, like you were always brought in and a part of what was going on. One of my earliest memories of worship is standing on a pew right up towards the front because my grandparents' philosophy was the closer you are to the front, the more in the action that you are. But I remember standing on a pew next to my grandmother who had this beautiful soprano voice mm-hmm. and I remember singing these hymns and I don't know if you've ever been in the sanctuary at First Baptist Decatur but you have these massive organ pipes stretching to the ceiling and this sort of transcendent sound we talk about the vertical part of worship and I remember being awed by that as a kid and enjoying that those voices coming together and that lift that you feel. To me, that was, it it felt like home. It was something I think that was in the deep recesses of my mind when I was exploring my sense of calling. I always found a sense of connection with, with the gathered body. How old were you when you started expressing some sense of calling? I was in high school. My sense of calling, I guess, at its earliest was really that I wanted to help people. Both of my parents are in the medical profession. I thought for a time that that would be how I would live into that calling. You ever want to go back to young Matt and say, go to med school, Matt? (laughs) Well, you know, medicine has its own challenges these days, too. You know, so I don't know that it would be any easier. It would just be a different kind of difficulty. But I remember talking to my grandparents about it. They were both ordained ministers, and they really just gave space for me to explore those conversations. They didn't say one way or the other, this is what you definitely need to do. I talked with a youth minister who I dearly loved, and and he was encouraging, and another kind of interim youth minister who would listen to me and kind of bear those conversations. But it wasn't until I was in college that I, towards the end of my college career, that I really started to say, When was it that I had a kind of peace about what it is that I'm supposed to do in this, in this world with my life? And I went back to some of those high school conversations 
that we're affirming and that we're encouraging as I was thinking about doing something in church. And so I came back to my grandmother and said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about maybe something in church or ministry. And she said, I wondered when you'd get around to that. Oh, interesting. You know, it was this, this sort of, like, I knew at some point you were going to come back to this and now let me get you connected with some of these people that I know that were a part of the founding of Mercer's School of Theology. I went to Mercer for my undergrad. And, and it was like coming back home. It was Peter Ray Jones, who was the pastor at First Baptist Decatur when I was dedicated as an infant. And Doc Hollingsworth was the director of admissions. And he recruited me the one year he worked in undergraduate admissions for Mercer. He recruited my brother and I to Mercer undergrad, and there he was recruiting for Maxie now. There were all these people who knew my grandparents, who I didn't really know. I wasn't a religion major in undergrad, and so it felt, again, like coming home. Mm. You know, like, oh, well, this is, these are my people, and they know my people. So that's really kind of what set me on the course for ministry, and then my grandmother insisted, you need to work in a church. If you're going to go to seminary, a part of your formation has to happen in a congregation. Smart woman. Yes, there was a lot of wisdom there. So she called um, Joel Richardson, who was the pastor at Central Baptist in Noonan, Georgia at the time. M my family had helped Joel get over from Ruston, Louisiana to Southwest Georgia down to Edison. And she said, Joel, my grandson, Matt, is coming to McAfee and he needs to work in a church. Can you create some kind of position or is there a way that he could work at Central Baptist with you? And he said, well, let's create an intern position. And so I, I did that for most of my seminary career. So your family's welcoming you in. You've got these great guides and mentors right there in grandparents already seeing your giftedness and naming it and affirming it. We're... <laughs> This is going to sound like a gotcha question or like I'm trying to set it up a certain way. I'm really not, yeah. but I wonder, were there any shadow sides to your sense of calling? I say that because I have found in looking back 30 years in my life, oh, that there were some other aspects to calling that maybe weren't as healthy for me and weren't as positive. Does that resonate yeah, at all? I think it does. I, I think I would imagine for most ministers there's never a kind of purity to that sense of call. There's there's always layers to it. I think for me, I was also working through some of my woundedness that had not been tended to. And we'll get into some of that a little bit later in the conversation, but I think it was a way to also try and heal some of the things that felt either broken or unattended to and it was also the familiar part of my family's yeah. story. I mean, yeah. I, I think had my grandparents not been who they were, I doubt that it would have been part it is much a part of my sense of calling conversation because of the lack of exposure. It was you in know? your imagination as that's right. Part of the world of possibility for you. That's right. My twin brother is an accountant. My maternal grandfather was an accountant. That was part of the family story. I think we, we continue some of these narratives in our family systems for good or for ill in our own lives. Was it a straight trajectory for you that you went Mercer, McAfee, working at Central? I took a semester longer 
took four and a half years to finish my undergrad. So I finished in December and then January started at McAfee. Um, So I really didn't have any kind of a break other than a couple of weeks at Christmas and just kept going. What year was this? I started at McAfee in January of 2001. So the school was only a few years old at that point. Uh, There were still students around that were part of those first couple classes that so I was school. I was asking about Doc because I was enrolled at McAfee and I was supposed to start fall of 99 mm-hmm. and deferred a semester and was supposed to start January of 2000 and just didn't part of my own wrestling and, and struggle with ministry has been this sure. I don't want to do it I get pulled back into it I don't want to do it I get pulled back into it which is part of part of part of the sort of capital t truth of it for me um clearly i didn't end up going to mcafee so it's interesting to think that we there are points where we almost overlapped over the years but somehow still didn't manage to meet until now yeah it is a small world (laughs) it really is it's It's a really small pond (laughs) so at some point you meet your wife caroline yes i finished at mcafee and then my first full-time place of call out of seminary was at First Baptist in Athens. Caroline is a nurse and she was working at a hospital there already. I actually met her parents before I met her. Her dad and I served on the CBF of Georgia coordinating council together. I was a student rep and he was on the council right at the time I was getting ready to graduate. They lost their son, Patrick, Caroline's younger brother, in a car wreck. He died and It was on my radar going to Athens to connect with him. He was pastor in Madison, Georgia, and I happened to run into him at a sandwich shop. The weekend I moved in to my apartment in Athens, and I I went over and spoke to him and offered my condolences, and his wife, Ann, my mother-in-law, said, I loved your granddad, which people never said. They would say, oh, Pearl you know, she really stuck out because she did. And so that kind of, that struck me as different. And then they mentioned that they had a daughter who lived in Athens and you all ought to get together and meet. And I thought, that's not good. (laughs) Parents are shilling for her like that can't be good. So fast forward a month, I get one of those other duties as assigned assignments from the pastor at First Athens, he says, hey, I need you to take a van load of senior adult ladies to the General Assembly meeting in Birmingham. So this was summer of 2004. And so I did that. Caroline is there to see her parents off. They were leaving from the meeting to go on sabbatical. He had been approved for a Lilly Grant funded sabbatical, which came at a really good timing just immediately after the loss of their son. And so she came over to see them before going back to work. And she walked into the room where they were doing the state gathering. And I was standing there talking to Leonard Ezell. And who is this beautiful woman walking in to this Baptist meeting? And then she kisses her dad on the cheek. And I thought, what did they say her name was? You know? Yeah. So then I go over and introduce myself to her and she plays it cool. And a week later, we were at church and 
spoke for a minute and end up getting something to eat and then another meal and another conversation and then that sort of history you know? yeah but we met through church through this sort of I mean y'all are both in the water just like swimming yeah. in that Baptist life that's right yeah her parents were a part of the eight people who were sitting around a table at Callaway Gardens who were dreaming together about starting a theology school at Mercer. Wow. And so along with my grandparents, it's just a really small pool that we swim in. That's also really beautiful to me that this generation of friendship and affection that you didn't even know was happening. Right. The grandparents and parents and and now the two of you finally connect. That feels really magical. Yeah. So you have this magical beginning with this woman who's beautiful and you have two children and you go on to serve churches as a pastor and it's perfect and great and smooth, right? That's exactly how it happened. <laughs> so much winning, so much success. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, it's, there's also all this life that yeah. it, it leads to all this unevenness and a part of our story is grief and trauma and unattended to issues in your lives and we do what so many of us do we try and grab a hold of life with a white knuckled grip and just mm. keep pressing forward and keep trying to hold everything together and think that everything is going to work out and it'll be fine if we just push a little harder and try a little harder do a little bit more and eventually things catch up eventually it's too much. And that's been part of our story in the last couple of years is that too much finally caught up to us with my addiction. As you were talking, I was thinking about Liz Gilbert has the great quote in Eat, Pray, Love, where she's at the ashram in India and she can't meditate and she just cannot do it. And this guy, yeah. Richard, says to her, like, you have to, like, you think that you have your fingers on the top that's spinning the world, you've got to let go of it and watch what happens and see that the sun continues to rise and the birds continue to fly. And I'm aware of that white knuckle grip. Yeah. <laughs> and thinking if I just, uh, I think that's some of what I was saying about shadow side of calling for me is, oh, I can be a professional good girl and I can perfect my way into a life that has no pain and a life that has no fear. That's a big one for me. I remember laughing, you know, when we were getting ready for graduation, when I was finishing with my MDiv, and there were a number of us who were kind of sitting together and say, you know, now we are masters of divinity, <laughs> which is just laughable, you know? Um, and then you think, well, am I also a master of ministry and a master of my own life? And, you know, it's not that any of us, if we sat down, would ever say th that we would agree to that, but we function as though that is true in a lot of ways that it's hard for us to ask for help or to admit what we don't know or places where we don't have a full competency or awareness of what it is that we're having to deal with or face. And yet so many of us in ministry for different reasons, maybe we're small staff in the church or things come at us at a pace where we don't have time to kind of, learn or reload or try and find the answer. So we just sort of charge forward with what it is that we have in our toolkit or 
what's readily accessible. And the model that we were given was that the pastor is the professional person of faith. Yeah. Modeling the perfect life <laughs> for the congregation, which is, yeah. uh, it's amazing to me that we're, we're going to get into talking about professional hazards of alcohol use disorder, right? Yeah. Which I think probably creep through a lot of helping professions. But I'm also thinking, how is there not generations of clergy ulcers, <laughs> just people swallowing all of that and shoving it down into their stomachs and all that pretending, oh, the cost of all that pretending. The notion that M. Div made me a master of anything is <laughs> ludicrous. I simply realized how much I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah, it, it... If anything, it ought to tell you the extent to which you don't know all these yeah. things, you know, um, you, you just sort of pulled the, um, you know, the curtains back and, and you get a glimpse of, man, there's this whole world out there that there's a fraction that, you know, so let's create a lifetime sort of disposition towards continuing that knowing and that unknowing that pursuit of understanding. And yet a lot of that is so trapped up in, in our ego mm -hmm. needs to validate ourselves in our own insecurities or to fulfill these expectations that congregations knowingly and unknowingly put onto their ministers. Yeah. I, I know for me, when you were talking about being affirmed in church and how powerful that is, I don't, I don't want to take away from that. I do think it yeah. is amazing that at a very young age, I had ministers who saw giftedness in me and they named it and they invited me to the microphone, even if I had to stand in a chair in order to reach it. I mean, at a young age, it started with like reading the missionary birthday list on Wednesday nights. And then as I got older, I was praying and then I was reading scripture and praying and worship as a teenager. And so I will never stop being grateful for that. Yeah. And also I can see it was also feeding this thing in me of, oh, they need me. They need me. So I am worthy. <laughs> as long as they need me and I'm performing for them, then, then I have value. And that's been some of my own struggle. And we're using this word deconstructing all the time for everything, but really like uh, just pulling the curtains back, like you said, like really looking and seeing okay, what, what is this for the good and the bad, for the gray in between? And it sounds like you were aware of addiction and comfort, comfortable using that language long before this year, right? <laughs> when did you when did you first start that path of, hey, I think something's going on here? So my use of alcohol goes all the way back to adolescence and, and teenage years was when I first tried it and first experienced what a substance like alcohol can do for you, which is to turn off how you feel about whatever it is that's going on in your life. So that if you're carrying anxiety, if you're carrying pain, if you're carrying these hard things that maybe you don't have the outlets that you need to tend to that or to dig into the source of those things, here's the thing that can turn that off. Yeah. And, and it does it, can it so well. I think that's it, part of what we need to name is it's not just here. It, it, like we're talking about going and finding needles in the alley, right? Like it's just, here's this thing that's readily available. It's being marketed to teenagers for sure. And yeah. guess what? I don't feel socially awkward anymore. And my brain is not yeah. buzzing with 
a constant ticker of everything that's yeah. done, undone, failed, whatever. That's right. Yeah. I normally feel so self-conscious and so anxious about how I walk through this world and how I look at my body and are all these things. And then I can have a couple of drinks yeah. and suddenly I don't care about any of that. Suddenly I'm free. I'm yeah. liberated. We think yeah. at least that's the way it feels. I mean, there's a reason why substance use is so readily engaged in because it works for what you initially want it to do or need it to do. And I don't know that that's necessarily what I was looking for or knew would happen, but I was exposed to it early on. And early exposure is one of those pieces of this sort of risk profile for how you can get into addiction and on weekends or ball games or when we get together and go camping. I mean, there was always somebody who had an older sibling or who knew somebody, or there was a county line liquor store that would, if you did the drive through, they would sell it to you. Um, you know, that my. Is, I, it shouldn't be cute, but that's very cute. Was it, was it, were you in a dry county and that's why you had to go to the line? No, no, no. But there was just, you no, know, we lived out in the county when I was okay. in high school. So. And there were drive throughs, like there were drive through daiquiri places here in New Orleans. Right. You couldn't. It's not like in Louisiana where you can, you know, get a, a cup of daiquiri, you know, you a drink made an for you. An extra just... large daiquiri and a straw. <laughs> and and here's the thing. As long as you don't open the straw wrapper, it's fine. it is legal. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That, that's not the way it is. But, in, officer, in but officer, the straw is still in the wrapper. Yeah. Can't you see the paper on top of the straw? <laughs> yeah. Oh, gracious. I mean, it was just there. Yeah. As a... As a white, middle to upper class. There was a certain privilege in what we were able to do and be around and that kind of thing. And so, you know, it, it was just in the water and what everybody did. And we were just sort of swimming along with everybody else. Was there a so. dissonance between that crowd and that activity and what was going on in your adolescent church life? No, the same people that we would see at bonfires or out at somebody's farm or something on Friday nights or Saturday nights, we were all sitting in church together too, but nobody talked about it. Yeah. Nobody talked about any of the difficult things or the hard things or the broken things about life or family or anything else. We all pretended that everybody's life is perfect, that nobody is struggling with addiction or substances or grief or trauma or marriage is falling apart or any of those things, there's this sort of performative yes. nature to institutional church, yes. you know, where you, you show up and you are supposed to bring your best self. I mean, I was explaining is, but is uh, it to even a church a couple weeks ago. Self? So no, 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 I don't think it is. But like, I remember in my childhood, my parents saying, okay, well, no, you can't wear those pants and those shoes out to play in the yard. Those are your Sunday shoes. You know, you got to put those on with these pants and then this shirt. That's what we wear to church. There's your even a clothes, different your best behavior. That's right. So we put that on to go to church, but we're different during the week. We wear different clothes. We walk in the world differently. And I would argue that it's not your best self because it's not your full self. Yeah. The best self to bring to faith community is your full self, unvarnished, open, transparent that's what we need to be able to bring to our faith community. And yet you um, and I both know that isn't how it works or it has, it's not how it has worked 
especially in our Southern experiences. My intention of starting this podcast was not to just shit on the church. (laughs) Right. I really wasn't trying to say, let's all tell our worst stories. Let's make church look bad. I really am curious about what are spiritual expressions and experiences that are honest and open and and unconfined. I really do mean that. And then also one of the themes is these institutions, be it church or my guess is we're going to hear some of those as I talk to a rabbi next week too. Like, yeah, it's also in synagogue. And a friend sure. texted and said, everything you're describing is also in 4-H where I work. Sure. <laughs> so some That's of right. it is just human institutions and previous generations believing, carrying these cultural assumptions of, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to air my dirty laundry. We're not yeah. going to talk about family business out loud. Like, uh, you know, I think right. I can hear all those phrases being used. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a sin to have problems. It's a sin for people to know your problems. So we're not going to talk about the hard part out loud. And we don't want to be gossiped about on the prayer list. Right. People find out and suddenly everybody's praying for us. Yeah. Yeah. As if, you know, you can get through all of this life on your own um, and hold your own hand all the way through it. Right. And I think a lot of that is about control. I mean, it's our own need to control. It's our own need to have our own life kind of held together and be able to manage things and get through whatever it is. But that bleeds over into purity. That bleeds over into this sort of rightness that we have to have, our image. I mean, we put a primacy on those things because it's a way for us to control our lives. And it's really hard to separate that out. So if you come in and you are your authentic self in faith community and you say, well, this is where I don't have it together. This is what we're struggling with, or this is what is happening with my kids or my parents or my siblings or whatever, or my work. I mean, what you're saying is I don't have control of this. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's, for me, that was one of the most, liberating things about getting into recovery and particularly beginning the work of the 12 steps was the first thing that you do is you say, I do not have control. Mm. You know, the way that I am ordering my life or that I am living my life or managing my life, it is not working, not for me, not for anybody else. And so I've got to let go of that. And when did you realize it wasn't working and it was time to get honest? It was during COVID. You know, I, for most of my adult life, I had the kind of a relationship with alcohol that a lot of people do, but they don't think it's addiction. They don't see themselves as an alcoholic. And there were times when I could sit down and have a glass of wine or a beer or something. And that's it. Just a drink. There were plenty of days weeks, months, even where I wouldn't have anything. And there were also these times when I would have too much. And so for a long time, what I would try and understand was what were the underlying things for why I drank too much? Was I coping with my anxiety? Was I dealing with some kind of pain or was work really difficult or whatever? And then I would tend to whatever that thing was. And then hopefully that would mean that I wouldn't have 
a binge like that again, where mm. I would have too much to drink or that kind of thing. That the binge was a one-off. Right. Yeah. yeah. This is just, you know, this is just, it was a, it was a big wedding. It was a, you know, it was, it was a big get together, that kind of yeah. thing. Just as long as you don't do these dangerous things, as long as you don't drive, or as long as you don't, you know, you set these guidelines or these rules for yourself, then you should be okay. But because addiction is a progressive disease, the longer you stay in it, the longer you participate in it, the more you begin to move past those guardrails mm. and those things that you set for yourself. And it's not out of will or intention. It is just the nature of the disease. And so when COVID hit, you're isolated, you're separated from everybody. The norms of the work week and the work schedule that are part of those kind of guardrails, that's gone. We're dealing with an incredible amount of anxiety. We're dealing with pain of loss and, and grief of these relationships that we're not seeing and engaging in. Things were uneven in the life of the church. There's a, a purple church back in you know, 2020, 2021, with everything that was going on politically and the unrest there, as well as what's going on racially in our country and my wife works in healthcare. Mm. So she's kind of on the front lines there. I mean, she never really stopped working. Kids are at home. You're trying to school them virtually. I mean, it was all of those things along with just being a pastor and a human being and a husband and a father and everything else. And so my use, like a lot of people's use, increased so that there were more of those incidents where I would have too much to drink. And for me, it was folks would go to bed and kids are in bed and I would stay up and have several drinks. And then it finally got to a point where Caroline and I just, we got real clear and she said, whatever you're trying to do isn't working anymore. And so something has to change. And I had been feeling that for a long time and was still trying to figure this out on my own and still feeling like I, I ought to be smart enough, I ought to be strong enough, I ought to have enough willpower to change this for myself. And that's because I'd grown up in this sort of moral model around addiction where this is just a problem of your will and your desire. When really the addicted brain is not, you know, can't make those changes purely out of will or desire. Yeah. It's not that. It's that fundamentally some of your brain chemistry has changed and you need to have help. There are ways to go about this medically to change your life. So how did you figure recovery. all that out? Well, so January the 19th is my sober birthday. It's a Tuesday. I went to the leadership of the church where I was the senior pastor and I said to the chair deacons in one conversation and then to the chair of personnel in another conversation, I have a problem with alcohol and I need help. I can't do this on my own. I realize that something has to change in my life and I'm going to need help to do that. And I know that's going to require some, from an institutional perspective, I'm going to have to have the room to do that. So can we put together some kind of plan? Can we figure out what we need to do for that? So that started a journey that I'm still on today and 
I'm going to do the work today and we'll stay on it today. And then tomorrow we'll deal with it when we get to tomorrow. But um, I went to inpatient rehab up in the Nashville area, did outpatient treatment for a number of months after that, started doing step work and going to meetings in the uh, AA program and started working with therapists and dealing with some underlying trauma and grief and other things and just have done the work to kind of dig into this and, and realize the things about who I am that are different from others, but the relationship that that I had with alcohol is not one that's going to go in a healthy direction or in the direction yeah. that I want my life to go. You know, for me, it's different. So in different Quitlet books, I, I know I've come across the example somewhere of we would never say of someone, well, he just couldn't handle his heroin. He just couldn't right. handle right. his opioids. But right. we do say that about alcohol. And yeah. and I'm I'm still really a student of this. I, yeah. I quit drinking like seven and a half months ago and I'm learning right. sort of about the whole range of sobriety and, and choosing it versus um, feeling like I need to go to a, a rehab center. Younger generations are not drinking as much. Right, right. But part of what I want to push against is I don't think it's healthy for anybody. Right. And that, that's a challenge for me. And I don't want to just get so stuck in that, that I'm resisting labels. And maybe I am too stuck in that. But I think one of the things that I kind of bristle at is this notion of, well, I just couldn't handle it, but everybody else can handle it. I texted you after being at Total Wine around Easter, I think is when I was yeah. there, because I knew that they had a really big NA selection and I wanted to just see what are the different options. And I wanted to pick up something that did not have alcohol in it. And to be in that space with a sober mind of like, I wasn't mm -hmm. going in there to buy booze. I was just struck by this warehouse of booze. It is yeah. floor to ceiling, aisle after aisle after aisle. And maybe because it's Louisiana too, there are people just giving stuff out. You can sample whatever you want to sample and you can have it in candy. You can have it in a pre-mixed drink. And something about that, watching people getting ready for Easter by filling grocery buggies full of booze really had me back in that space of is well, it even I, worth but, thinking through that? Or is it just, do you just need to approach it from such a personal perspective that you're saying, I am opting out of this? So I think it's important to think about when we're talking about addiction. I mean, it's not just substances. It's also processes as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we kind of have the spectrum of what's the worst, you know? So we'll put the hard drugs over here. These are the worst. And then alcohol, because we're a little bit more friendly in our relationship with alcohol in our society. So it's not quite as bad. There's some people that can't handle it. And then all these other things are much more permissible. But, you know, anything in your life that you participate in or that you use that uh, is destructive to your relationships or to your health or to your well-being, your smartphones yeah. are the most ubiquitous dopamine delivery device that we have. I think you can make an argument if you understand process addictions as well as substance use addictions that every one of us in this world has some kind of addiction, particularly in our culture. We're all chasing 
some dopamine high. And we get that from overworking. We get that from sex. We get that from exercise. We get that from food. We get that from having control or making somebody else do what we want them to do. We also get that from using substances, drinking alcohol, using different kinds of drugs. But really, the chemistry set is already in our brain. The the dopamine process is already there. And these processes or these substances, they just kick off what's already there. And so whatever it is, we're chasing something that is innately a part of our body. And some of these are just more frowned upon than others. Yeah. But they're just as pernicious. Yeah. If me sitting on my smartphone while the rest of my family is sitting around the dinner table If that's happening, if I'm ignoring my children because I can't stop working, it's causing just as much damage to the relationships in my family as if I'm using alcohol too much, cocaine or whatever. Dismissed more easily or people, people roll their eyes. Well, he's, he's a workaholic. Yeah. There's also people that say, oh, but look how hard this person works for their family. it's rewarded for that. He's such a hard worker. Oh my gosh, look at the He's always there. He's the first one there. He's the last one to leave. Yeah. Right. Look look at their body and how good it looks. Wow. So we elevate some of those things when really what's behind that? Um, What's at the root of that? And is that a healthy way to live? And what's being ignored and what's the pain underneath there? And do we even have spaces where we can have those conversations? Yeah. Is our, are our communities of faith, are they the kinds of places where we can be honest about the lives that we're living? Are they the lives we want to be living? Or are we having to use these things, whether processes or substances, to manage how unhealthy or how difficult our lives are in our culture and in our world? So have you found that there are faith communities where we can be this honest? I I don't know that I have found a faith community that's willing to just say, I'm laying it all out on the table. It costs me more to keep it in than than it does to just say, here's my stuff that I'm working on. So I would say recovery is not just about stopping the use of your substance or process, although that is part of it. And that's a initial part of it. Right. But it's also recovery wants to address your entire life. Mm -hmm. You bring your entire life into conversation with your recovery and any parts of your life that don't fit into that sort of rhythm of health and well-being, this holistic, connected, intentional way of living. You've got to integrate that, too, or else I think you continue to stay at risk or greater risk for relapse. So thinking systemically like that, I think it's a challenge for a lot of institutional churches to fully embrace that kind of approach of recovery, because that's going to mean looking systemically at the health of the institution. And are there ways that the institution is set up or that it lives or that it kind of marginalizes some and prefers others, whatever, are there ways that it's going to resist that work of recovery? And I think 
I think most institutional churches want to maintain homeostasis. Yes. They want to stay where they are. They don't want to change. That's the way most of us as human beings and adults, it's easier to stay as you are, even when it's difficult, it's easier to maintain homeostasis than it is to change. And we really only make significant change in our lives when we are in crisis. Mm. Most churches are resistant to that kind of change unless crisis comes to them and they're in a really difficult spot. For you, this change was a real pivot point for you in January, 2021. Yeah. And that meant a pivot professionally as well. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I went off to a treatment February 1st of 2021, a couple weeks into treatment, actually Ash Wednesday of 2021. I was on a zoom call with some of the leadership of the church and I thought they were checking in kind of at the midpoint. And they said, you know, we need to tell you you're no longer a good fit to be the pastor at First Baptist Rome, and we need to ask you to resign. And that was that was a painful moment when you're in the middle of doing the work of trying to get healthy and get into recovery. I've been away from my family for a couple of weeks, very limited connection and conversation with them. I thought I was doing everything that I had been asked to do. And I'd come to them and said, I need to make this change. Help me get to a healthier place so that I can be at my best. Yeah. And they had, they had welcomed that and said, let's have this wonderful redemption story and let's then figure out, you know, how we embrace this as the, some of the work that we need to do. And there are a lot of layered reasons for why that was that they said, we need to ask you to resign for me and the work that I have done in recovery. I have a real clear sense that if the church had stayed in homeostasis and everything, the leadership and everybody else wanted to do business as usual, and then just plug me back in as a recovered, sober person, mm -hmm. um, but everything else stayed the same, that would not have been healthy for my recovery. We were going to need to pull everything back and take a look at all of the things in the church system and with leadership and just all of it and move everything towards health and wholeness. And so at that point, I guess I could have said, you know what, I don't have to be here anymore. I'm going to just leave and go back home to be with my family. Yeah. But I had already discovered the gift of getting into recovery. It was already so clear to me of what a sea change this was going to make in my life and how much I wanted that and was just so clear that this is what I've been missing in my life. The next day I shared as part of the rhythm of the treatment program I was in couple weeks in, it was your turn when your treatment group to share kind of your story and the kind of impact that your addiction, your particular own addiction had had in your life, with your family, with your kids, with your work, all these things. 
And now I just had another piece of it <laughs> to yeah. add to the story at the end. Um, but I'm sitting in the room with this group of men who are experiencing addiction in different ways, some alcohol, some drugs, multiple things, multiple substances. And so I just, I tell them everything. I mean, I just, I unload it there with them. And, you know, it is the rawest and most exposed I have ever felt. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like you take everything out that you've been pressing down and hiding and keeping off to the side and you put it all out there for everybody to see. I had always thought all of my life that if I ever had to do that, that I would just disappear, that I would completely, that level of exposure would kill me. And Elizabeth, it was the greatest gift. They received all of that and they said, we love you. Mm. And they offered grace and welcome and affirmation to me in that moment that conceptually I had always believed this is what the gospel asks us to do in faith community. This is what the church should be. And I realized I wasn't sure after what I'd experienced the day before if that was possible, if that could exist anywhere. And then the next day, there I am sitting in the middle of it. And it wasn't in some institutional congregation somewhere. It was in a treatment room. Yeah. And it was the most radical grace and love that I could imagine possible in this world. And it was such a profound sea change moment for me. I, I just sat there in, in those moments and I said to myself, now that I know that this is possible, I won't accept anything less than this. Mm. Like if this isn't what we are trying to do in faith community, yeah. then we're wasting our time because yeah. this is what we all need. And maybe if I had had that kind of experience decades earlier in my life, maybe my life is completely different. You know, and maybe that's part of what so many people have come looking for and what they get is this rigid performative exchange of pleasantries that you could find in a lot of other places or groups of people yeah but it's not the gospel yeah being lived out in its fullness for me that it just cemented okay this has to be different you know Things have to be different going forward. And so I came out of treatment without without a pulpit anymore, without a job in an institutional church, but with a clear sense that doing the work of recovery and giving my life fully into this exchange of reflection and action that led me towards help, that it would guide me where I needed to go and to the people and to the communities that need that. I sense that, you know, this is completely compatible with the work of faith. Absolutely. And with the work of what God, it it was resonant with it. And so Um, that was the point at which you started a D-Men and began doing it? No, I started the D-Men 
a year after I started at First Baptist in Rome. Okay. And so I had been working on, I'd finished my coursework and I'd been working on a project that was really focused on cultivating the next generation of leaders. Okay. That's what we're trying to do. Let's, let's keep this institution going and let's build the next group of leaders that are going to take the yoke on their shoulders and they're going to push this thing on farther down the road. Right. And I wanted to help solve some of that. And I just, well, one, I didn't have the place to do that in anymore, but also that wasn't where my heart was anymore. My advisor in a wonderful word of wisdom said, maybe you ought to do your D-men, your project out of where your passion is right now. And I can tell you, there's not much out there that's been done around addiction and recovery in the church. This is what you're interested in. This is where your life is. Why don't you do something around that? So that gave me some ways to kind of dig in institutionally with the recovery that was happening inside me already. What have you found in the work you've done around that project? So my project was really focused on educating ministers around addiction and recovery. Part of what I had experienced, I imagine you experienced in your seminary education is a very sort of paltry exposure to addiction and the work of recovery through your MDiv. So just real quick, most ministers that are serving in congregations, the degree that they most likely have, though this is changing in recent years, but historically was the Master of Divinity. No matter what seminary that you've gone to, that's typically what your ministers have gotten. I chose to look at the seminaries that we were connected to, including MACFI, but these seminaries that were connected to the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, because you have to have a group, you have to have a kind of set that you're working out of. But I wanted to look at the sense of competency that ministers had out of their MDiv work to handle conversations around addiction and the work of recovery in the life of the church. There was a study done in the late 90s where all ATS-accredited seminaries, the presidents and deans of those seminaries, were sent a questionnaire around addiction and recovery. And this was done by Columbia University up in New York. Mm -hmm. And almost 54% of the seminaries responded, which is an astronomically high response rate. And they were essentially asked, do you see this as an issue? Is this something that you recognize that's problematic that individuals and communities are facing? Almost 98% said, yes, this is, okay. this is significant. Follow-up set of questions were essentially, so what do you have in your curriculum? What are you doing about it? About 75% said, we don't really have anything in our curriculum. Most MDiv programs, uh, if they address addiction and recovery, they usually come at it through some equivalent of an introduction to pastoral care. And you might have within that semester, you might have a class where you talk about addiction and recovery, but that is completely at the discretion of the professor of record for that class. So if addiction and recovery is something that they're fluent with or something that they are engaged in, there's a good chance that they're going to spend some really intentional time and they're going to enforce that this is something you're really going to need to pay attention to know about, do your own continued work on, but not everybody is. What I found in all of my participants was none of them had a sense of competency or fluency around addiction and recovery. 
from their MDiv curriculum. We had one participant who had done a master's in social work along with their uh, master of divinity. And in that social work program, they were exposed to a lot of that. Not every seminary has even beyond that a particular class that the whole semester would be focused on addiction and recovery. There are a handful of seminaries that do that were a part of my study. And even the ones that do, those classes don't come around every year, nor are they required for the MDiv. And the students that take those classes are students that are heading towards counseling or chaplaincy. They're heading towards disciplines where they're going to get more of this anyway. But the average minister that is going into a local church is not educated significantly enough to match the level of significance and impact of addiction, substances and processes in the life of a congregation. Yeah. So the statistics for 2021 are that one out of six Americans ages 12 and up qualify under the DSM-5 for a substance use disorder. Wow. One out of six. That's just substance use disorders. And if you understand addiction as a systemic disease, that means if that's a parent, that's everybody in the family. If that's a child, that's a 12-year-old, sixth or seventh grader, that's everybody in the family that's impacted, right? So when you start drawing that web out, you realize suddenly, okay, it may be that everybody that's sitting out in the pew on Sunday morning is dealing with the impact of addiction, whether it's substance use disorders or process addictions, they are experiencing that impact. The disconnection, the unevenness emotionally, the conflict, that same late 90s study, the ministers in, these, in the seminaries that responded to the study they estimated that alcohol use was connected to 50% or more of the pastoral care issues that they faced wow. and had to deal with on a regular basis. Now, it's not necessarily that it's talked about, but the impacts of it. And that doesn't even begin to speak to the lack of resources that clergy have for identifying, naming, dealing with their own addictions. That's right. Whether That's right. Um, what we process or substance. Yeah. I like knowing those two categories. That's really helpful. Yeah. I mean, as I've done this research and as I've had these conversations, I have it, on a weekly basis, I have a new conversation with a minister or somebody in a congregation who say, Hey, I've heard that you're doing something in this area. Can I talk to you about myself? Can I talk to you about a family in the church? I don't know where to turn. Yeah. I'm not sure what to do next. So there were conversations along the way that I discovered where ATF, some of the national organizations that deal with directions of treatment from a federal or state perspective, private, public, around addiction, they had gotten together and they talked about, okay, well, how do we change that? How do we provide core competencies? How do we provide education for ministers? And they identified that there's a kind of two-pronged approach. We need to address this in seminary education, but we also need to address 
clergy who are already serving in parishes wherever they are. So there was curriculum that was developed that was delivered to seminaries, though the, the implementation of that was really sparse. There are a couple of organizations that are working to educate clergy on the backside who are already serving in communities, but for the scale of the number of congregations that exist and for the scale of the problem, it's like trying to put out a house fire with a squirt gun. Yeah. So I really was trying to understand with my project, what does it take to change the sense of knowledge, the attitude, and the practice of a group of ministers who don't know anything about this? They didn't know anything when I interviewed them on the front end. We went through a kind of educational process, and then on the back end, they were able to say, I feel more competent. I feel more fluent in this. I actually can see how this impacts the life of our church. Mm-hmm. Here's some real clear things that I want to do in terms of including language about this in my preaching, I'm trying to think about having Narcan on hand mm-hmm. in our church so that if somebody shows up and is overdosing, then we'll be able to arrest that. Learning who in the congregation is in recovery and can be a resource, figuring out who's doing this ministry and this work in our community, and then asking, how can we partner with you? How can we join alongside you? There's a lot of ways that they said, this gives me new understanding and new ability to think about stuff that I'd never even considered. I just wasn't even thinking about it because I didn't know. And I think that's part of the issue for addiction is that the overwhelming emotional response that a lot of individuals who are struggling with addiction have when they think about the intersection of faith and their addiction is shame and judgment. And a lot of that shame and judgment as it relates to churches, it's not coming because pastors, ministers are standing up there and are lambasting people that are struggling with addiction. It's that they're not saying anything. Yeah. And so the silence communicates judgment and stigma. It's that we don't bring that stuff here. You need to go somewhere else. You need to get your life in order. You yeah. need to be healed. And then you can bring your healed self, yeah. your whole self, your perfect self. You can bring that in here. And don't talk about um, what you did while you were gone. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, only if it's really juicy, you know, then you can tell us about that kind of stuff. Right. But it's a lot harder to think about what it looks like to walk alongside individuals and families while they are in the thick of it. And that's a part of what we experienced in our own journey. There were very few people who were willing to stay close alongside and sit with us in the uneasy and the unrest and everything that we didn't know as we dug through this. Well, and part of that is because when you are honest about your own woundedness, you're now holding up a mirror for the people around you to see their woundedness. And yeah. and these addictions that we have, whether it's scrolling incessantly on our phones or more, are ways to escape. Absolutely. seeing and, and coming to terms with our woundedness. 
So thinking about that in terms of the church, I don't want to be a total skeptic, but if, if institutions are working toward keeping that homeostasis, how do we make space for difficult, messy, challenging, vulnerable conversations? Because that is going to hold up a mirror to the whole thing. And that's going to challenge homeostasis. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the issue, right? It requires trust. It requires vulnerability. If you think about liberation theology, so Paulo Freire says the only people that can actually help work for liberation are those who are oppressed. Mm. You know, the oppressors can't come in and say, hey, here's what y'all need to do to find liberation. Yeah. I mean, it's why I think AA works is that it's a group of men and women who are experiencing addiction who they themselves are saying, here's what we've found to be helpful. And so it requires, first and foremost, for the institution itself to say, all is not well. <laughs> what we're doing and how we're holding things together isn't working. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of that conversation that's happening all over the sort of church world these days. And we talk about it in terms of metrics that we can mm. understand budgets and people showing up on Sunday mornings as evidence of things not working like they used to. But I would argue, were they ever working like they were supposed to? Yeah. What if the institutional church, as we created it and as we have cemented it, what if it actually becomes more of a barrier for pursuing the work of God in the world that was the original intention all along. I think what you're saying is beautiful. And also I know the risk of standing up as a pastor in a church and naming out loud, all is not well. Yeah. Not just in my own life, but all is not well in this thing that we're trying to keep together with duct tape and spirit and yeah. chutzpah. I mean, I'm looking at somebody who was able to bravely say all is not well. And within three weeks, your job was gone. Yeah. So there are real risks, but then the risks of not doing it are much greater. Well, that's we're right. Continuing to cause harm by not telling the truth about our lives and not telling the truth about our institutions. A phrase that you, that you hear a lot when you're in, in recovery rooms is, this this only leads in one direction. If you stay in your addiction, it leads to death, to jail. That's the end point of this. It doesn't go in a positive direction if you stay in your addiction. And I would argue that with institutions as well, as long as you keep trying to do the same thing and expect different results, yeah. it's going to lead in the same kind of direction. You're going to be imprisoned by these really important things that at one point had so much meaning and purpose behind them, but at some point, maybe they've lost their efficacy. It's not working anymore, yeah. but we got to keep doing it. We got to keep trying it. Maybe we try a little bit harder. Maybe we put a little bit more effort or we just, we change out some of the colors or things, 
there's such similarity I have found between what was going on with me internally um, as I moved out of addiction and into recovery as what I had experienced collectively and institutionally as a minister in congregations that are trying to move towards the future from a past that is so heavily anchoring. Yeah. And that work is the same kind of work. Are we able to really get honest with each other and say the way that we are doing this is not, it's not helpful. It's not working. I mean, we feel like we have to keep showing up and keep doing it because this is what we know and this is what we've been committed to for so long. But if it's not leading towards health and new life, why? Yeah. Why would you continue to do it? And that, at the end of the day, that was what was so clarifying for me about recovery. You get a taste of new life and freedom and liberation and you become unshackled from this thing that at one point was really helpful. At one point, it did the thing that I needed it to do, which was it helped me cope with my feelings and my pain. But eventually it became the source of the pain. Yeah. Right. And I had to get liberated from that in order to find new life and in order to find freedom, in order to be fully myself, in order to be the human being and the husband and the father and the sibling and the son that I have in me to be. And I can't imagine going back mm. to that other way of living life, even though at some point in time that meant saying goodbye to some things yeah. and some people that I loved and it was fun and it was just a part of life. So I, I think there are some similarities that could be helpful for congregations to engage in. I've been working on a kind of sketch of what would it look like to invite the church into recovery, mm. to help the congregation imagine how to be freed from these things that have become addictions yeah. in a lot of ways, even in spite of the ways that they are wounding ourselves in the world. Will, will you name you know, some of those? What do you mean by some of the things that have become addictions? Well, ways we do worship, Yeah. the ways we control who's in power, the ways we organize ourselves, whose voice gets heard and whose doesn't, um, what we spend our money on. I think all of those things we can say, oh, this is, this is really good and important, but it may be more about our own comfort and maintaining our own homeostasis than it really is about pursuing the work of God in the world. With the Pew survey this past year said that now a majority of people are unchurched or done with church. They're yeah. outside of the institutional church. Now for the first time since you and I have been alive, yeah. right? So why wouldn't we go join the work of God in the world? Yeah. No matter where that takes us. Because there's more people out there than there are still in these institutions. And look, I'm, I still love the church. I care about, I have so many dear relationships and people that have loved my family and that I dearly love. There are parts of it that are meaningful and that are connectional and that are important. And I think you also have to say they can also be damaging and dangerous and unhealthy and used for ill and not for good. Just like the 
substances and processes in addiction. These can, some of these things can be really good, can be yeah. really helpful. If you're having open heart surgery, I hope they have opioids. That's right. In the hospital. That's right. right. I don't want to have an open heart surgery on Tylenol, right? right? But that's not something that I can use on my own and take on my own, right? When out of place or when disordered, it can kill me. Yeah. I think these are important conversations to have in the life of the church, first and foremost, because it will help save lives of of individuals and families who are struggling with this. In the last couple of weeks, a dear friend of mine, an Episcopal priest, asked me to come and talk with his parish. And so I spent a couple of Sundays, just 40 minutes on addiction, 40 minutes on recovery. And the response of those who were gathered there who came up and said, this is my story. This is my mm-hmm. wife's story, my husband's story, my children's story. I've lost a son. I've lost a daughter. I've lost my spouse my parents, my dad, my mom. And they said, we've never talked about this in the church. This isn't something that we thought we could have a conversation around. And it was so freeing for them to look around and find community within their faith community of people who were on this journey too. If for nothing else, that is life-giving and will help save lives because they know they're not alone, right? So having these conversations around addiction recovery can help bring support and connection for people who are struggling with this themselves or in their families. And I think it can also be a kind of entry point to deeper conversations that our communities of faith and our institutions need to have about the larger systemic things at work in their midst. Absolutely. Um, I'm thinking specifically about the program Celebrate Recovery, which I don't mm-hmm. know anything about at all. I just know it exists. And yeah. I think of it being at the margins of church life how, and how often there have been programs that you go over there and get fixed and then come back and how different it is to talk about all of the addictions and all of the ways that we can come alive. If that, mm-hmm. if that isn't the work of the church, what is? Right. Yeah. Um, right. So I want to end kind of on a personal note. I do want to talk about all this collective and systemic stuff. And also I see how that can be a distraction from the personal. You got to have right. both. So I right. wonder if someone is listening to this conversation and feeling like, okay, this is a pivot point for me in my own yeah. journey. What's your advice for next steps and finding community and being honest and telling the truth about your life? Yeah, I think the first thing is to know you're not alone. Yeah. And the hardest thing to do is to ask for help. But the most life-giving and liberating thing is to say those words, me too, I need help. And there are so many people in the recovery community that are so loving and welcoming and can't wait to welcome the next person that walks through that door. It doesn't matter what you come into those rooms with. Nobody's surprised by anything in there. And you could drop everything down and they would say, okay, that's great. Welcome. Here's a white chip. 
come on and join the community. And for me, I think I didn't, I didn't know, or I didn't trust whether or not I would be welcome in those spaces. I had this, this idea in my mind that my story was unique and it's not, it's just like everybody else's. I was dealing with this thing in my life until I couldn't deal with it anymore. And so there are people around you, if you're struggling with this, who want to help and who can help. There are resources that are available, that are Googleable, that are within walking distance. I have an app on my phone that's called the Meeting Guide. And no matter where I am, when I'm doing my work for my job, I can plug in the zip code of where I am or the city where I am, and I can find a meeting and I can go to it. So I would say it doesn't have to be the way that it is, that your life can change and you can recover. You don't have to keep staying in this cycle of pain and tired and just miserable. It can change. And there's a lot of people who have done it and are doing it every day. My oldest child is just over 17 now. And the night he was born, there was a nurse on the labor and delivery hall whose husband was a professor at the seminary where I was a student. And he was from Nigeria. They're both from Nigeria. And right. a baby being born in Nigeria means a heck of a lot more spiritually than it does to white folk in the United States. And yes. I know that he had a sign in his office that said, God danced on the day you were born. Yeah. And that is 100% the energy they brought that night to this child is being born and God is dancing. Everything is thin. The celebration is enormous. And yeah. so much abuse in Christian life has come around that language of being born again, right? That it's right. being born for what? For for some existence far in the sky that, that isn't, isn't now. Um, and I find it really hopeful to think that there's some sort of divine celebration in the ways that we are being born to our lives again and again, the ways that we wake up, the ways that we, no matter how old we are, you know, 15 or 45 or 75, that notion of we can begin again and God dances and celebrates as we do. Yeah. And that we're never beyond the grace of God. Mm -hmm. God knows us to the core of who we are and loves us still. And there's nothing that you can ever do to earn that. And there's nothing that you will ever do that will not make that true. I think it's really hard sometimes to hear that when you're deep in active addiction because you feel yeah. so much shame and you feel so much pain about who you are and the choices that you've made and the ways that you have fallen short of your highest and best ideals for yourself. And the only way that I have found in my own life to get out from under that is, is to admit it. This is who I am. And I have found in the recovery community that that's not a prohibition against community. That is the key in yeah, that is what welcomes you in is you saying this is a part of my story, too. And they say, come on, sister, come on, brother, come join us. To me, it has been the closest thing that I have been able to witness and experience that 
to what I believe authentic Christian community to mm. be, where we are, everything else is secondary. The thing that is most primary is what does it look like for this thing to live most fully in your life? Yeah. And anything that gets in the way of that, push it to the side. And that's the language that I grew up with in church. What does it look like for Jesus to be most alive in your life? Yeah. And anything that gets in the way of that, push it to the side, except most of what we were doing was a head exercise. It was a thought yeah. exercise. It wasn't really bringing our whole lives to that conversation. Yeah. Right. So there's this super high ethic of adherence within the recovery community where if you're not bringing your full self to it, they will sniff that out. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. And that's a real gift. Yeah. It is so freeing and liberating. And, and I'm glad to have conversations with whoever. That's a part of the work of this is passing on what you know and what you've learned. I'm no expert in this. I don't have any certification in addiction or recovery. I'm not a counselor or anything. I've done a lot of reading and work myself. So I'm, I'm just an expert in my own life. Yeah. But I'm glad to be a conversation partner and a help to anybody. Well, why don't you help me build out the show notes for this one? And we'll okay. put some resources in there. So anybody who wants to do some reading or wants to find a meeting or wants to follow up with Matt and just have some conversation, we'll drop all of that in the show notes for people to find. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you want to share that we haven't gotten to? Um, gosh, I mean, I feel like there's so much. We could keep going for hours and hours. We could. Well, let's do you a know, part two. We'll do a follow up. That'd be great. You got to have a season two, right? I'm working on it. I, I know people have asked that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do a season two. I need to think about what voice that's going to take. Well, thank you, Matt, for all of it. The truth telling and yeah. the willingness to just be raw and make yourself available for other people who are uh, wanting to come alive. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Elizabeth. It was a privilege.